Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 18th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Minister for Sport, Shane Ross, has asked the President of the FAI, Donald Conway, to withdraw his domination to continue in his role. Sport Ireland agrees. Yesterday, its chairman, Kieran Mulvey, and its chief executive, John Tracy, told an Oireachtas committee that there had been a clear understanding that none of the existing board would be re-elected. Aidan Horan, who chaired an independent review of the FAI governance, told the committee, however that an element of continuity might be best to smooth over the handover. We're joined by the chair of that Oireachtas Sports Committee and uh, Fine Gael TD for Loud, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, to tell us a little bit more about this uh, because uh, you would uh, agree with uh, the Minister and indeed uh, Sport Ireland and would like to see a clean sweep. I think the point was that after our committee meeting earlier in the year that uh, John Delaney attended, uh, Mr. Conway said that when he was asked a particular question, that that they that if he what would they do to ensure that there was continuity and that there would be change, and he was asked if necessary would they would they resign, and he said the board would not be no member of the board would be going forward for a re-election. Mm. Um, but there's no other candidate at the pardon, moment, is there? There isn't, and that's the problem. It's a bit like if you take, for instance, political countries, and I'm not suggesting that they're anybody like the, the old Stalinists, but where the leader of the country uh, says he's going to stand mm. down and then he's persuaded to stand again and then he's elected unanimously with no opposition. So clearly, clearly uh, there are serious issues about continuity of the old regime. Mm. 
And I think in order to clear the air and to make sure that the funds start flowing again, you're talking about three million mm. to all of the youth uh, soccer organisations in the country. I think if Mr Conway, who has, I believe, been very helpful in the interim, if he were to step aside in the interest of a whole new fresh start, I think that he would be lauded for that personally. And I think the organisation, the new organisation, would get greater acceptability. Mm. Uh, what do you think is going to happen? I don't know. That's mm. a matter for the yeah. FAI. They have a vote uh, at, in County Mead uh, on on Saturday on the rule changes. Mm. And then the following week, uh, they have their AGM. So it mm. is a matter for them. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about this report. There were five people were involved in the report. Three of them were not members of the FAI. Mm. So in fairness to the FAI, they had a minority on that. Uh, but the recommendations are far-reaching, and I think they're they're very positive, and they're for they're for real change. And I mm. think I think everybody wants change. And this meeting on Saturday is the EG and the extraordinary yes. uh, the general meeting, general meeting to uh, pass the rules, so that in fact some mm. people who've been nominated, I understand mm. for the VP, vice president, that they will be entitled to stand because they need mm. to change some rule as well as that. Uh, and also to reduce the quorum, uh, the amount of people needed for decision-making. Yes, now that was a matter of discussion yesterday and we were given, uh, I'm still slightly unclear on it, but uh, apparently the rule at the moment is two, but the proposed rule changes say six. So if the rule changes are adopted, it will be six, but as things stand, it is two. Mm. So that's, that's but that's uh, that's... Uh, they didn't. The, the the people who spoke yesterday didn't see that as a, as a major issue. Although the minister did obviously comment on that. And then there's <coughs> the AGM uh, at which yes. the president is to be elected. The president, the vice president, mm-hmm. be elected. And uh, the difficulty about the AGM that there will be no accounts produced. So the, I find that unacceptable, mm. as obviously I'm sure everybody else does. And why is, is that? The well, case? we don't know. Well, I, we, we just well, what, what we were saying yesterday was, is that this is a fifth. This is a business. Uh, while mm. an awful lot of people give their time voluntarily to it, it is a business. Turnover of fifty million, employ two hundred and eight people. So there's huge accountabilities and responsibilities mm. for the staff and for the administration. And chances and, are, it's insolvent. <clears throat> well, that's what we don't know. Mm. Uh, I think. A direct question was asked by Padre Gokedi uh, uh, to John Tracy, mm. head of Sport Ireland, and he said that, uh, no, I, I'm not sure I'm exactly quoting mm. him exactly, but that they could very well need a bailout yeah. and that the funding would be provided, uh, hopefully, by UEFA or mm. whoever. Fair interpretation, but, though, to think Oh, it is, of course. Oh, no, no, yeah, I'm not, yeah, no, 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 no it is no. true. It, oh, it's a very no. serious matter. I mean, there are huge debts as well. And, I mean, if you don't have a new start, a fresh start, completely... Mm. Uh, it doesn't make sense and people won't find it acceptable and obviously notwithstanding everything else there are significant sponsors as well of, mm. of, of, of soccer and while I'm not calling on them to consider any issue I'm just saying that they have you know, they have to have transparency I presume in how they fund and who they fund mm. and uh, you know, there's no reason in my view why there shouldn't be a complete change, particularly mm. when they said there would, there would be one. And it was a, a great night for Dundalk last night. Uh, it was indeed. One of the more positive aspects Absolutely. of the, the FAI, <clears throat> but this uh, goes back uh, to 
the flow of money Funding, yes. uh, and <coughs> the former chief executive writing a, a cheque to tide the FAA over for 100,000, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. At a time when the FAI was withholding money that was due to be paid to Dundalk. Absolutely. And the point is, it's the, the who knew, uh, what they knew, when they knew, mm. uh, what they did about it, uh, what they didn't do about it. I mean, these are all questions for mm. the, the outgoing board, in my view, and all of the people in it. Well, you tried to ask yeah. those questions of John Delaney, didn't you? And he said, he couldn't answer them for legal reasons. Yes, yeah. Well, mm. I mean, that is his legal position. Mm. Uh, but clearly, the, there are a number of inquiries going on. There's the Director of Corporate Enforcement, uh, which has a responsibility for the Companies Act. And there, that is that is in the nature of, of mm. a, if somebody is found guilty, whoever they might be, mm. it's a very serious charge. Where's John Delaney charged. now? Well, John Delaney is is uh, <coughs> is on what is called gardening leave, Michael, mm. which means he's still getting paid, but he has no access to the office. He has mm. no access to computers or anything like that. That he's it's like he's just, mm. for want of a better word, he's he, he's just out sick. Yeah, so um, he, he's pruning his roses. But he has resigned. He has resigned as obviously mm. as a chief executive. So there's no expectation that he will come back in that form anyway. But he's still being but paid that salary, he, isn't he? Well, I suppose uh, again the due process is mm. if you're asked to step aside in your job because of issues, mm. uh, you know, until there's a determination found, uh, until there's an outcome, mm. I suppose. That that's what normally happens, right? But uh, am I right in thinking that when you say he's on gardening leave, uh, that he's being paid three hundred and sixty thousand euro a year to prune his roses at a time when the FAI may be insolvent? That that appears to be the case. Yes, that's mad, yeah. isn't it? Well, it's what's happening. It's yeah. it's what's. I mean, his salary mm. was, I think, at one stage four hundred and twenty thousand, and he very kindly took a cut back to three three sixty. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that it's a due process and it has to be seen to be, uh, it has to be seen done in that way. Uh, clearly, when the outcome is, whatever the outcomes are, there's the, there's the uh, uh, you know, the inve- mm. investigation under the Companies Act and then the Sport Ireland, at my recommendation, they have, uh, they're doing a forensic audit on all the accounts of the mm. FAI for the last three years. So they're going into every single spend, every single penny, every single item mm. uh, forensically and we hope to have that result in in September and then obviously the FAI have internal they have Grant Thornton who are accountants in there and they have Mazars so like it's costing a huge amount of money all of these investigations are millions, I have no mm. doubt. Uh, there's also a number of Grant Thornton staff apparently are helping and supporting uh, the FAI to provide the data and also, I understand, providing day-to-day resources as well. So this is hugely... Um, it's hugely expensive, mm-hmm. and it's, but I mean, so therefore, if there isn't a complete change, a sea change, out of all of this, you know, it, it, mm. it, it would be a complete and utter waste of money. Okay, and yeah. the FAI didn't uh, appear before you. They'll they didn't. Well, in fairness to them, I, I, I just explained to you what happened was that this this was a report, a joint report mm. of the FAI and Sport Ireland together, but the FEI weren't asked to attend because uh, we were actually asked that not to put pressure on them to attend yesterday. Mm. But they did ring me on Sunday uh, to give me a private briefing on their response to these issues. And I said, unless it was in public mm. in the committee, 
I, I wouldn't go for that briefing, and I didn't. Uh, okay. I offered them to come in yesterday, yeah. come in today, come in tomorrow, come yeah. in next week. So they wrote to me the night before last saying that they would, in fact, come in after their AGM. Yeah. So we will follow that up. And obviously the timelines, once we know when we're expecting the different reports, we'll be able to yeah. organise a meeting, hopefully okay. as early as possible in September, Michael. Uh, and who was it that called you from the FAI? It was Cahill Durbin, a good friend of yours and mine. Mm. He was acting in his capacity as... Uh, obviously mm. a, a professional communicator for them and uh, that was the conversation we had. Uh, uh, offering to meet with Donald well, Conway amongst others? Well, no, no. he just mm. said that, that the President uh, would like to brief me as Chairman of the mm. Committee about their, their response to the issues that were raised and I said uh, I would consider that and then mm. I spoke to my clerk as well in my committee mm-hmm. and I told him that it wasn't on. And the upshot of all of that is that the President will <coughs> come before your committee after he's been re-elected as president. If he is, yeah. yeah. yeah that's, mm. I mean, but mm. the point is anyway, I think there's enough storm clouds gathering now and we need to dispel them all, get the money back mm. to the young people. Get And the other point, which is hugely important, mm. and Mr Conway is an important person, obviously, mm. but the new chief executive is, is a hugely important role mm. to get that person appointed. Uh, how you appoint them, the transparency about mm. it, who recruits them, what the interview process is and what the marking scheme scheme is for different candidates. Can the FAI survive without the state funding? Well, they can survive without the state funding in theory because of their 50 million budget, we we provide three. But they have also got government funding for different uh, sports centres around the country and different, obviously, uh, other activities, uh, local government and other uh, state organisations fund them as well in different and separate ways. So uh, the other point is, if if the state doesn't fund them, that is hugely, that's a hugely damaging issue for them in terms of their sponsorship. So if you have Company A, mm. who is a major sponsor for mm. a sports body, and the government says we're not funding these mm. people because of this issue, well then there's huge issues for mm. that company if they yeah. continue. So so that it's a house of cards. Mm. I believe that could very easily collapse, mm. and we don't want. It's a gamble though that they could take, isn't it? Because I mean. It, it's small change in yeah. terms of the overall well, in, budget. There's in, in three million out of fifty million yeah. is small change as far as the FAI is concerned, and they could yeah. uh, decide to take the high moral ground and say, "Look, we're not going to give in to political opportunism." Yeah. And who are these people to well, tell us how to run our organisation? Well, that's one way of looking at it, mm-hmm. Michael. Certainly, mm-hmm. uh, the difficulty with that point of view is that if the state, in its wisdom, decides not to fund them on the recommendation of the Sports mm-hmm. Council. That will affect uh, sponsors, I've no doubt about that. May or may not, uh, and oh. that might be the gamble that they're willing to take, and they may well, decide think, to increase yeah. uh, the well, price of jerseys, they might yeah, d- well, decide to increase the, 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 the cost uh, of uh, to, tickets uh, yeah. into games and that sort of thing. Yeah, but they mm. can, but I don't think, I think in fairness to all the people out there, they want a new FAI, they want the money back to their young people, they want a new chief executive, they want a new independent chairman, they want a new board, and I think that is a momentum mm. that is unstoppable. Uh, and uh, I think that going with the flow of And this, who would be suitable to do that? Well, that wouldn't be for me to say, but mm. uh, clearly I do think that you should have a, you know, a national... But you can't uh, have a, a clean sweep... <clears throat> And then leave the positions void. No, no, what they're Mm. doing. No, I understand that. Well, that the pro tem or for the time being, 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, the point is that uh, it's a point that people make to me. Well, mm. they, they could go with their EGM and put off their AGM, so mm. that, but notwithstanding the fact that that leaves people still in place, I, th- I, think, I think the process of selecting the chief executive should proceed under a new board. I think that would be important, but that should be as quickly as possible. Mm. It's, it, you know, I think this, the circle can be squared. Um, or can you square the circle? Mm. Mm. Uh, but I, I, I think the point is... Uh, we need a new chief executive. You need an international competition. You need a highly experienced company to to advertise and mm. recruit for them, uh, and then you need a, a huge number, you know, the the appropriate consultation and the experts on that board who would interview them. And I think the majority of people on that board should not be members of the FAI. Mm. <coughs> I know, uh, I, I saw that you're, you know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, so, so the question is. Um, you know, what, what does the future hold? And the future holds, I think, what the people want, which mm. is change. And uh, as I say, the new chairman, the new chief executive. Okay, so what next from the committee's uh, perspective? Well, the EGM this weekend, as you yes, say. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, no, we don't intend to meet over August unless there's an exceptional reason. I spoke to committee members yesterday mm-hmm. and that's, that's their wish and I understand that. So it looks like we could be <coughs> meeting uh, the first or second week in September. We have the offer from the FEI to come in. Mm. We'll have the grant, sorry, we, we'll have the, uh, the, the, sorry, the audit, the forensic audit, uh, you'll have the, the Mazars mm. and the other activities, Grant Thornton, they're being paid for and supported by the FAI. Mm-hmm. We'd be happy to have them in, but the ones we're interested in, obviously we're interested in those outcomes, so we're particularly interested in the forensic audit. Uh, the Director of Corporate Enforcement, uh, hugely, hugely mm. important, and uh, I think John Tracy said there could be significant. And, okay, but uh, in the meanwhile, you're hoping yeah, oh, sorry, uh, and says, yeah. All, all, all that you're doing is hoping uh, that uh, the AGM <clears throat> is postponed, uh, that the election of the president and vice president is postponed. Well, or, or, or alternatively, that the that the that there would be declared a vacancy that nobody is actually mm. standing. He could, I, I don't know the rules. Uh, uh, and if it, it was me, I could say, look, I'm not going and, forward. And if Position not, is vacant it, and, if uh, not, yeah. it, it, it is it within the remit of uh, the committee uh, to recommend that withdrawing. Uh, funding is the re- appropriate response and is that what you would favour? Well what we would favour is what Sport Ireland suggests to us uh, we haven't disagreed with them yet they are the professionals who advise all the sporting bodies, fund all the sporting bodies so we will go on their recommendation but obviously every member is entitled to So you'll wait to have. see if an election takes place how Sport Ireland respond and then you'll support well, their position most well, likely Well I think it's, well, it's clear to me that they, will, they, want, they want change now rather than change later and uh, I think that has implications clearly that they will not provide uh, the funding if that change doesn't take place All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you for coming into us uh, this morning for the Gale TD. For Loud, Fergus O'Dowd is uh, the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Sport. Michael Reed on LMFM. Gillian Thornton was 20 years of age when she was killed. Gillian was thrown from the back seat of a car which was split in two when it collided with another car on the N2. This followed a 35-minute guarded chase. The pursuit of the car began when it was seen driving in the wrong direction on a roundabout near the M1 retail park. The driver continued through the town, then heading north on the N2 towards Lane and then turned back in the Ashburn direction before crashing near Balrath. 
the trial, which ran over 13 days, heard recordings of 999 calls from the passengers in the car, scared that the driver was going to crash. One of the calls ended in a scream just before the crash. Yesterday, the driver, 45-year-old Michael Collins, was jailed for 14 years. Gardaí say Collins was speeding on the wrong side of the road. He was involved in near misses, drove head-on at guarded vehicles and was travelling without lights on while weaving from side to side, sometimes playing chicken with other motorists. Elaine Thornton, Gillian's sister, is with us this morning. Good morning to you, Elaine, and thanks for coming in to us and uh, taking some time to appeal to other families not to get into cars with people that they don't know, because I think that's uh, the main reason you're here, uh, and with good reason. Uh, as uh, the judge, Martina Baxter, said, uh, Collins had no regard for safety, life or limb, and your sister uh, suffered as a, a result of that. Yeah, and the message that me and my family just want to put out to everybody, anybody and everybody, is that make sure you know the driver and you trust him. And please think twice before getting into a car with somebody that you don't know, because in the end, Gillian paid with her life. And we're hoping that if it saves one family from going through what we're going through by speaking and talking out, that'll be one less life lost in the roads. Mm. She should be 24 years of age now. She it was, was a month before her 21st, wasn't it? Yeah, a month before her 24th. She actually turned mm. 24 um, on the 14th of this month, Sunday. Mm. Um, still not real. And we, we just, with someone, we'll never, we'll never be a family again. Mm. He took that from us. Can uh, you ever understand how anybody would get into a car and behave like that because uh, it, it, it is a lethal weapon when you use it like that. Most definitely mm. and I think the hardest part of it all is is knowing that he'd done it but while he was doing it Gillian was begging him to stop the car. She was in hysterics and I know because I actually identified her voice on the tapes in Drottagada station two years before the trial even started and I heard her and I don't understand how somebody could physically keep doing what they were doing and her screaming, and she begged him, and he just chose not to stop the car. He made that decision. Did you ever speak to him? No. We we never we didn't know this man. Julian didn't mm. know him. We never heard of this man until about six months after we actually killed Julian. Before we knew what he looked like, we didn't even know what he looked like until then. Mm. And he showed no remorse. He didn't apologise to didn't, the family look, in court. As far as he's concerned, he done nothing wrong. And as far as we're concerned, the evidence that was presented in court, Gillian was a victim. And he, after, we know, we know Gillian chose to get mm. into the car. It was the other passenger in the car who, who knew the man. And Gillian chose to go into the car. She chose to go into the car. We know mm. that. To go to a concert. To go to a concert. Yeah. We know she chose mm. to get in. But mm. she got in and then she knew something was wrong and she rang the guards. But she wanted to get out. Mm. So as far as we're concerned, he held her in the car against her will when she asked him to get out. So I, I physically I physically don't know how somebody with any emotions could not stop the car. I really don't understand it. And you heard the recordings? I of... heard all the recordings because Gillian, what happened was is there was two passengers in the car and the voice had to be identified. It didn't have to be. I was invited to the guard station to identify the voice on the, on the phone. Now we had recordings of Gillian, but they, our own recordings from our life, um, but they couldn't use that recording. It had to be actually listened to and mm. identified. So I went down and I, I listened to them and I identified her voice. I didn't realise I was listening to two of them, but because there was two, I had to listen to both to clarify that it was the same voice on both tapes. And it mm. was. Mm. And you heard 
Gillian in the last moment of her life? That it was that I think that for me was one of the hardest things I've I've ever had to do. Um and to know she was so afraid and none of us could do anything to help her. Mm. I think that's that's what killed us the most. And like I said to Michael Collins in my impact statement, he took all my good memories from her. Because all I do now, all I have is nightmares. I just hear her screaming all the time. It's so hard to try and dampen the screams out of your head. And I don't think I'll ever get over it. Listening to her, I, I don't think I ever will. Mm. Uh, looking at, at photographs of her... Uh she was a stunner. She was a stunner, but she was also very young. I, I know I said she was a, a 20-year-old woman, but she yeah. was a young girl, wasn't she? Oh, she was mm, a baby. Mm, mm. She was her baby. Like She's the youngest of the three mm. of us. And um, she uh, you'd never see her without a child. Honest to God, she just adored children. Um, her and my brother, there's only a day between them and their birthdays. So they're, they're practically like twins, even though there's three years between them. Um, she was the most loving person you'll ever meet. Like, my mum, as I said, I'm sure you've seen it in my statements before, my mum used to always say, if love was money, Gillian would be a millionaire. And that's what she was. Mm. That's exactly what she was. Um, since she was killed, we actually, um, Oliver Thompson, he runs a memorial cup in her name. So I, we were all involved in it. And um, we raised money for different charities. So we um, raised money for So Sad and Childline. But this year we're raising it for um, the Road, uh, Road Safety Authority. Because mm. Gillian was a big dad player. She travelled everywhere playing darts. Um, all the men used to hate to get her, go against her because they'd be afraid of the life of her. Um, we're actually going to do Helen back this year as well to raise money for the same organisation because it's a great organisation and it helps victims' families, families like us. And it's actually victims' families who run it, which is, I think it's better as well because they mm. understand straight off the bat yeah. because they are after living it. Uh, and for people, because we hear people are drinking and driving again, we hear there's a lot of people who are getting into cars after taking drugs. Uh, would you ask them to think about that before they do it? Think about it. Don't do it. Why do it? Why Why? Do, why destroy somebody's life? You're, you're taking a life. So yeah, And you're not only taking that life, you're taking the family's lives as well. Like when Gillian was killed that night, he took her from us, but he killed the rest of us. We're nothing now without her. And it's not just us, it's all of our family. Everybody has lost her. Her godchildren, her niece, her nephew. Like, as I said, we'll never get to walk Gillian down the aisle. My dad walked his daughter down in a white coffin. That's that's the reality of it. A white coffin. So please think that could be their child. That could be their niece, their nephew. It could be their sister, their brother. So please think twice before getting into a car and putting somebody else's life in your hands. What do you think of the sentence that was handed down to Collins? And honestly, was shocked. And I can speak for my family as well. We are so shocked. And, you know, we are very grateful that Gillian's life was worth something. Mm. You're, you're, you're positively shocked. Well, po- you're, oh, well, positively. You're happy definitely. with the sentence. Well, yeah. when I say, I wouldn't say happy. We are thankful of the sentence, that Gillian's life was worth something. And that families coming behind us might have some hope in getting justice for their children the way we got justice for Gillian. But at the end of the day, Gillian's never going to have a second chance. He will. He will always have a second chance. She won't. Mm. She's, he, he took that second chance from her. Yeah, that's it. I mean, in 14 years from now, he'll have many years ahead of him. Yeah. Yeah, most likely. And Gillian will have none. He'll be free and she won't be. She'll be mm. still where she is in Calvary Graveyard. So we, in saying that though, the sentence that was handed down, as I said, we're hoping that it'll give, and I know it's, it is sad to say that it's going to be families coming behind us 
and we hope that it gives them some kind of hope that the justice system works and hopefully it'll work for them too the way it worked for Gillian mm. it's a horrific story uh, oh, mm. it really mm. it, it truly is but in saying that though I know people have been saying the guards this the guards that they done what they were meant to do yeah. and if they had it backed off and Gillian had died who would we have blamed then mm. and those guards that, that actually stayed with Gillian while she died they could not have faked the emotion they had they were seriously affected by it and we're very grateful that they stayed with her yeah. and especially the 999 operators who actually you know that had to have been hard hearing a child scream yeah. so it did and the victim support unit from Dublin great support we've had, yeah. we've had a great support network during the trial I have to say now and our family we wouldn't be here without them you know, our, our aunties, our uncles, we wouldn't. We wouldn't have been here without them. Well, I think it's true to say, I'm sure everybody listening will agree, Gillian's family are doing her proud this morning and as well, you have been over the last That's all we wanted to do was to yeah. tell her story yeah. and to know that she was a victim and she was she was the best anybody could ask for. She truly was. And she's going to be seriously missed. Okay. May she rest in peace. Elaine, thank you so. for You're coming into us this morning. That's uh, Elaine Thornton, uh, sister of Gillian, who was uh, killed in May of 2016. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to uh, a positive uh, decision uh, for families and uh, people with uh, disabilities uh, who res- rely on respite services at uh, Strutton House. Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD in Louth, uh, is with us uh, this morning following a, a meeting with the HSE uh, and a decision uh, to defer the uh, closure of uh, this service. Uh, some very positive news, as I say, Peter Fitzpatrick. Yes, um, uh, Michael, uh, about two weeks ago, Michael, I was approached by patients, uh, by families, by managing staff that uh, Stratton House was closing at the end of the year. Uh, these families were panicking. Uh, they'd be using these services for the last 23 years. And were informed all of a sudden by letter. Oh, yeah. Mm. What happened, Michael, was, uh, as I said, over the last 23 years, over 400 families have, have used the services. And at the moment, there's over 50 families in the books. Like, this letter came from absolutely nowhere. There was no flagging. As a matter of fact, Hickler was in mm. there recently, and Hickler recommended that it was one of the best uh, respite centres in, in, in the country. It was fantastic services. In one of the regular inspection reports. Oh, yes. Michael, a few years ago, Michael, mm. it was it was a four-bedroom mm. unit, and then it was changed to a three-bedroom. Mm. It reduced it from, 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 from four uh, patients per night to three mm. patients per night. But, Michael, it, it, the services were absolutely fantastic. Well, that's it. At any given time, uh, it, it was really only accommodating a small amount of people up to three people at any given time but over the course of a, a week or a month or a year as the case may be it was a, a crucially vital uh, a service uh, for so many people well every 10 days there was a cycle of, of, of eight different patients there which which was absolutely fantastic to, to, to the families like respite is very very hard to get and especially locally but in fairness like, uh, like th- these families are, are mainly coming from County Loud they do come from Mead and Cavan and Manor as well but the facilities are absolutely fantastic. Uh, these families were panicking. There was talk mm. about maybe getting respite in Sligo or Common, or yeah. maybe going on hotels and going on different types of breaks and everything else. And like, in fairness, but uh, last week I got an opportunity in the doll to ask the Taoiseach exactly what was happening, and he, he basically turned around and said to me that he hadn't seen the letter. He don't. He doesn't know who wrote the letter. Mm. He, he didn't send the letter. So basically, he's not accountable for it. So basically, he told me that the person who signed the letter is totally responsible for the situation. So the person who signed the letter was Jude O'Neill, who's head of the social care. He's responsible for mid, mid, um, the Midlands, Loud and Mead. Uh, I rang him last week. Mm-hmm. I, I told him that uh, I, I had family and a patient very concerned. He agreed to meet us yesterday at half past four up in RD in, 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 in headquarters. 
and uh, he's, and uh, we, we we arrived yesterday. I had uh, I had ten other people with me. I had patients, I had the families and the volunteers. We sat down yesterday with, with Jude and his senior staff. And in fairness, Michael, we got a, we got a very mm. very fair hearing. Uh, the first thing uh, we asked him about the letter, he put his hands up and said, "Listen, he c- he could have uh, done it a lot better." And like to me, that was a good start. Mm. He, uh, the, the commitment he gave us yesterday was that uh, that it's not going to close at the end of the year. Uh, he's going to consult the patients. He's going to consult the families. He's going to sit down and have a have a, have a look. He's going to have a look at at the infrastructure. Like, can we increase it from a three bedroom to a four bedroom? I think that the the main problem there, Michael, is and that's fairness, a bit of a surprise, isn't it, to increase the service rather than close it? No, yeah. Michael. Mm-hmm. What, he, what he says, Michael, mm-hmm. he's going to look at every opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like at at the moment. Uh, the maximum days per per year we can get beds is seven hundred and twenty three. Mm. If we can increase that and get the cost in, he's going to have a look at the salaries. He's mm. going to have a, it basically what he's going to do is, is it to do with uh, patient to uh, staff ratio type of thing. No, uh, uh, no. In fairness, mm. he, he, it, it, it's like at, at the moment there's one manager and mm. five point five staff there at the moment. Uh, that's 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 the, the recommendation from Hikra. Yeah. Uh, I, I think he's he's happy enough that. But the, the, the situation there at the moment was. Uh, uh, we we have to. He he maintains that it's it's, it's a very cost effective, and and we said to him, listen, we'll sit down, we'll we'll work with him, we'll study with him, and uh, we even offered there yesterday that we'd set up a committee, and if there's any shortfall of money, mm. that we we do a bit of canvassing and that there, like like the, the amount of support that we got in the last number of weeks about this situation, like when it comes to disability and, and the respite, like we. I think it, nearly every family it's touched by this here at the moment is, and if, if you're talking about maybe sending families to, over, over to maybe a different province or a different, like, like Sligo or Roscommon, but in fairness, he nipped in the bud there yesterday. He said that he would sit down and talk to all concerned. And the, the good news, us leaving there yesterday, was that Stratton House is not going to close this year. He's going to sit down and every avenue is going to be open. Mm, okay, uh, but it, it's not. Uh, uh definitive decision uh, this uh, may change there's a period of consultation now oh yes over, mm. over, over the next few months he's going to meet up with people mm. but Michael like as I said he was uh, there's a bit of hope and there's mm. a bit of hope and in fairness like he talked straight there was no mess at all uh, as I said the patients and the families and the volunteers yesterday felt as though they got a good, good hearing mm. we went into that meeting kind of half doomed and gloomed we left a meeting that there was, there was a possibility that if ever we put the head together that we can keep Stratford uh, House open mm. and that was the goal yesterday and I, I take it that when it had been decided to close the service uh, the uh, objective was to redeploy the staff to these other places in Sligo and Roscommon and elsewhere that you were talking about No Michael the, the, the staff at the moment is mainly made up of mm. the Irish Wheelchair Association and HSE and be, they, they would be redeployed locally like we said at the moment is uh, that the, the premises is based in uh, Water Crescent in the dock mm. uh, uh, it's it it's two houses combined together. It's, the facilities are excellent, and it's, like 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 we we did ask the question there. Yes, what would actually happen if they did close? Yeah. And in fairness, like uh, the, the mind wasn't really made up, but but the situation at, at the moment is because the question of the staff, where they'd work, and the building itself, and how that would be used. Well, as I said, uh, he put his hands up there yesterday. Mm. He said it could have been handled off a lot better. Uh, he's going to consult with us over the next few months. Uh, the staff has been there for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Most of them staff has been there from day one, and. In in fairness, like, like, 
we did mention the, the cost and the salaries, but but there's no agency staff there involved. The world the world care workers, and in fairness, they've they've got a fantastic system. Like over the last twenty three years, like uh, there, there, there was no need to get in any agency staff. There were they, you know they, they were all worked mm. as a team. Like I was talking to a young fellow there yesterday, Kevin, who came to the meeting, and he said this was his second home. Like the, Kevin's wheelchair bend, and he actually loved the services. And how how would he manage going to a hotel or somewhere else? Like mm. like most of these other places that there was an there was an option like you have to keep, take your own care with you like there'll be no care with mm. but we've got a facility as I said yeah, Hickwell has commended it uh, Jude O'Neill has given commitment yesterday the families we do believe in we do believe if we all put our heads together we can keep this place open uh, and is part of the HSE's objective to make it more cost effective to increase the number of service users without increasing the number of staff to go from three to four beds with the same amount of staff well in, in, in fairness Michael is a uh, if we incre- if we increase the capacity and, and mm. get more days, it's not going to cost any any extra money because the, the staff that they have there would be sufficient enough. So it, it it's really value for money as such. Like as I said, it, these are very very experienced staff. Like just volunteers. Like 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 the families are in a comfort zone there at the moment. Is and if if we can if we can get to HSE to increase it to maybe to, to four or five, we can we can actually increase the areas. I said earlier on, people used to come from mm. Mead, Monaghan, and Cavan, and like it it it, it it's a good story. Yep. Like it, it's very seldom that you go into the HSE and they come in and they put their hands up and said, listen, what they've done was, was, was wrong uh, and they're willing to sit down and renegotiate the situation. Mm. As I said, yeah, the, these families, uh, the amount of phone calls and texts and everything yeah. else at the moment is, there's, there's a lot of goodwill out there at the moment is and whoever it takes b- between the families, the patients and the HSE, okay. it's important. What about if you continue the same level of service uh, but uh, make it more cost effective uh, to deliver the same amount of uh, hours but over, let's say, six or seven months rather than 12? Well, Michael, every every option's on the table. Mm. Uh, we, we, we we go back to Jude O'Neill over the next few months. As I said, we're going to look at the infrastructure. We're going to look at it. all the setup there at the moment. Is now if we can if we increase the numbers or decrease the numbers, however, the most important thing, Michael, is these families need this respite. These families mm. are dependent on the last twenty three years. It's for, it's for really it's from adults from the ages of, of eighteen to sixty five. You've also got male and female mixing together. It's 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 it's, it's, it's also a social event, mm. and and especially with people in. in with disabilities they don't like changing you know, okay. the, the circumstances but listen as I said to you the HSE are going to do their best the families the pay, we're all going to work together and if we all work together I'm, I'm very very confident we'll get a good result OK well some breathing space at least uh, for the moment thanks for coming in to us uh, this morning Independent TD in Loud Peter Fitzpatrick Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and uh, text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Sean was in touch. He was listening to your interview with Deputy Fergus O'Dead at the top of the show. And Sean thinks that it's time to change the old guard in the FAI. He feels it needs a clean sweep, that a lot has gone on in the past and for people to have full confidence in the FAI, that's what needs to happen. Mm. Jim wonders why the board of the FAI just doesn't seem to want to let go. There needs to be change at the top. That is what soccer supporters in this country want, says Jim. Okay, well, I'm sure uh, some do and I'm sure some don't uh, for that matter. And I think the board would say 
uh, without meaning uh, to argue on their behalf uh, that their interest is in uh, the best outcome for the FAI and to make sure that it is the best possible football association uh, that can be delivered in uh, the country and uh, they don't know anybody who can do that better than they can. Okay, well, Frank feels that the FAI has been involved in too many controversies over the past few years and that unless there is change, that he doesn't feel that the board will move forward the way it needs to. Okay. So that's just Mm -hmm. on that. We've also had some reaction, Michael, to your interview there with um, Elaine Thornton. Mm. Uh, Listener says, such good advice from that poor girl who lost her sister. You should think twice about getting into a car with someone if you're not sure about them a car is lethal if it's in the hands of a wrong person absolutely yeah mm-hmm. uh, Michael delighted to see justice being done in this case and this comes in from Grania and Drogheda far too often you see drivers getting off with lighter sentences that than you feel they should mm. if the courts toughen up it will make people think twice about their behaviour and what crimes they commit she feels that we need tougher sentences for all crimes that she feels there's le- you know that some courts are far too lenient some yeah. sentences yeah well it's a, a really awful story and uh, I think uh, uh, Elaine really did her sister her late sister her late very young sister proud on the programme this morning yes uh, Anne says heartbreaking listening to that interview Michael uh, for that poor girl to have to listen to her sister's screams before she died hopefully other lives might be saved by her coming on the show and sharing what they experienced. Okay, well then that would be a job well done from Elaine's perspective, I think. Uh, We'll come back to some more of those comments in a a moment, Maria, but uh, we'll go to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, now to talk uh, about a significant political decision and announcement that was made yesterday as politicians begin uh, their summer holidays with uh, the doll in recess. No time to debate a restructuring of the HSE. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks for joining us Uh, The restructuring in itself is being described as going back uh, to the future uh, in the sense uh, that we're going back to a a system of of health boards. Six uh, this time around uh, instead of what would have been 11 health regions previously. uh, But this is uh, the dismantling of the HSE, which uh, the minister announced yesterday. Uh, effectively, yeah. Now, the minister and the government will contest that it's going back to the old health board system. They say it's different to that. There were, of course, 11 health boards uh, back in the day. There's now going to be six of them. And effectively, what's going to happen is between now and 2021, which is roughly how long it will take, it will, the HC will be restructured into uh, six regional areas. There'll be more autonomy given to people and doctors uh, to make decisions at a local level. They'll all have their own separate budgets. And what the HC will remain as, as a, as a kind of central unit, will be someone to essentially look over the finances, manage national policy that they will then have to be implemented at, at a local level, and to, to make all of, I suppose, the broad stroke picture mm. as well. The day-to-day stuff is dealt with at more of a local level. And do we have detail on how it's planned to bring about this change? Because the last time there was a change, we went from 11 health boards to one national entity, which was the HSE. And if I remember correctly, there were 5,000 people who were employed by the HSE who didn't have anything to do because the service had been streamlined. Yeah, well, this is a big question because obviously the idea of the HC in itself back in 2005 made quite a lot of sense. You had all of this being done at a local level. You had people who were 
doubling up on jobs potentially and okay bring it all into one streamline and make it easier but the problem was the same levels of staff more or less were were kept and that's the big question that's going to be there this time as well Simon Harris said yesterday that there will be fewer managers in this new structure and that's obviously been one of the big concerns of the HC is just this glut of middle management level who aren't able to help on the front line and to the public's mm. point of view certainly anyway aren't doing very much and uh, have dented confidence in the HSE but what the Minister didn't say yesterday was how exactly we would get to that point where there's less managers both Paul Reid and the Minister said that redundancies weren't foreseen at this time I don't see how you can restructure it and how you can do it without the need for some sort of redundancy then comes the question how do you find Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. that out of a health budget that's already strained. So we definitely have to see more detail on this to see exactly how it is going to be streamlined because if you simply take the exact structure of the HSE with the exact same level of staff and just put them in slightly different jobs, Mm. it's probably not going to work. And how people work and where they work for that matter because uh, the configuration of the health service is different to how it was under the old health board system and will be different again under this new system. We used to have four hospitals, for example, in uh, the North East and Cavan, Monaghan, Drogheda and Navan that would have uh, come under the HS or the the, the North Eastern Health board region. Uh, now uh, you've got uh, parts of Drogheda which are aligned with one part of Dublin Mead uh, with Blanchardstown, a di- totally different hospital group under the six hospital groups uh, that are in place at the moment. But Loud and Mead will come together with Dublin, Cavan and Monaghan now. Uh, so there'll be a, a difference in terms of how staff go about their work. Uh, there could be, yeah, a, a different in how they, they go about it. I suppose some of the concern when it comes to this more geographical location has been the traditional connections that are there uh, between hospitals. You've mentioned some of them there. Yeah. Others that I've heard this morning, for example, Waterford and Co-op could be quite close there now in different geographical regions where Waterford is going to be more aligned with Vincent's in Dublin. And, and Dublin itself is split in three which is a very interesting move. Mm. I think a lot of people would have thought you keep Dublin as uh, one entity and look after it there instead there's going to be the different ones with obviously Blanchestown coming into uh, that northeastern area. You're going to have Vincent's probably uh, in the south e- southeastern and then you, you have a third uh, group that's going to deal with more of Leinster. So it's, it's kind of an interesting geographical one and I suppose the idea, I, I presume, uh, about that 
is to make it better at a local level. You know, I mean, there's been lots of people in Meath and in Father Parts Allowed who will go into to Our Lady of Lords Hospital for most of their big treatments. So you're maybe centralising the resources there and focusing the services in that particular part. But it is going to... And where you might see the kickback is people are very used to working the way that they work at the moment. Mm. And that's the same in any job, not just in the HSE. So they're going to have to change and there's going to be mindset changes. We don't have the detail yet as to how that's going to work. Do we have the detail over what time frame it's planned or when consultation with the trade unions will take place? Uh, Some consultation with the trade unions, I think, has happened, but not a huge amount in detail. Simon Harris is saying that all of this should be operational by 2021. So it's about two years' time. Mm. I know it seems like a long time in the scheme of getting a lot of things done, but when you're talking about negotiating with unions or talking about potential redundancies package, people having to move to different cities or different towns to work, there's a lot of niggle and a lot of detail to be worked out in. Yeah, it seems like a, a good time to make a, an announcement like that uh, when there isn't uh, the time to debate it uh, in uh, the uh, Leinster House because uh, the Oireachtas is in recess at the moment. Uh, and uh, is it possible that uh, whilst a decision like this uh, to dismantle the HSE may be very popular that politicians will never get the chance to debate it because uh, they'll come back to an election? Uh, there is always that possibility. I mean, someone in Leinster House thinks there will be a, an election in September. I'm not in that camp. I don't think you can have an election until Brexit is sorted out. God knows when that will be. But if there was an election this year, I'd be more inclined to think November after the October deadline. There's, there is some disquiet among politicians that they're not getting the chance to debate this. And there's been a lot of health stuff that was kind of kicked to touch until it all was gone. We still don't have a capital plan from the HSE for this year for capital spending that's happening in 2019 and the year is two-thirds done almost. Mm. And there's other issues as well that weren't brought before it. So, I mean, the political timing of it as well, when there's more concern about the cervical check controversy and other big announcements in health, if you wanted to be cynical, you could say that that's there to, to distract a little bit from it. So the con- convenient timing of it uh, to distract from other issues. But we actually don't have a huge amount of the detail that will be needed to know how is this going to benefit patients and how are staff going to be affected. Okay, and uh, ahead of uh, the next uh, election, we had a significant announcement locally this week uh, in that Fine Gael issued, I think it was a a one-line statement to to say that uh, former TD Ray Butler, who lost his seat and then was appointed a senator by Taoiseach Gendik Kenny, had been selected to run for Fine Gael in the next general election, but has been deselected. What did you make of that? Uh, yeah, it was, it was a strange one, part of a few different tweaks and moves that happened at the, the Finnegan National Executive at the week in terms of selection around the country. So uh, it was a, an odd one in that he was a current sitting senator. It would be unusual to see them deselected uh, from a ticket. Ray Butler has been very quiet since the 2016 election, certainly uh, around Leinster House. You, you'd know better on the, the local front of things. Um, I think it's probably also a reflection that there were two candidates already selected there, uh, to run in Mead West, running three, it would have been, you know, ambitious on a good day, a terrible bad idea, and what's mm. likely to be a worse day for Fine Gael. So a bit more manoeuvring. We saw more as well in Sligo, Leitrim, where Senator Frank Fien has been added to the ticket, and then another candidate in Cork North Central, Judy O'Leary, who had been selected to run and then didn't get elected at the local elections, and she lost. Uh, she uh, withdrew, rather, from the ticket. So there's been a bit of playing around and we're going to see this, I'd say, over the summer from the parties with their general election slates as they take into account 
more recent polls as they take into account where they think they are ahead of a possible autumn election. Okay, thanks uh, for that. Sean, Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. I imagine, Marie, uh, that the decision to deselect Ray Butler and uh, to run Damien English and Sarah O'Reilly, mm-hmm. as had already been planned, is effectively the end of Ray Butler's political career. And I'm sure a lot of people would be disappointed that he was dropped. I'm sure they would, Michael, because mm. it's very, very unusual to see when, that someone's actually deselected. So I'm sure mm. his supporters and in Meath West would be very disappointed by that, yeah. as, as I'm sure is uh, the senator himself. Oh, I'm sure he is. Yeah. Well, I, well, I, I, I'd assume he is. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, I go to one or two. Yeah, please time do. For yeah, one or two more comments. More. Just, yeah. We had mm. someone mm. in relation mm. to the clo- the future mm. of Strutton House and what's going to happen there. Uh, Larry says he feels it would be a disgrace if it closes down, as it provides a hugely important service. Where are users to go if it does close? And um, Angela was in touch and she says that the pe- people of the area should fight tooth and nail to ensure that it stays opened, that there are very few places for respite in the area. Okay. I'm sure people are glad to hear that that has uh, been deferred yes. uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I'm sure we'll be coming back to that in the coming months. But thanks uh, for that, Marie, and thanks everybody who has been in touch with us today. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Marie and Maggie are taking calls now. Our telephone number is 1850 715958. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, no room for debate in the Dáil because of the holidays over water charges. Uh, yesterday it was announced that uh, water charges will be introduced again. Uh, to begin with, uh, up to Thanks for joining us. Are you surprised? Are you surprised by this news, Joe? No, this was brought in the legislation in 2017, which allowed for this to happen, which we opposed um, the uh, anti-water charges TDs. Um, it was supposed to be brought in earlier, um, but the uh, the Commission for um, Regulation uh, of Utilities had to look at it, and now they're talking about introducing this, um, which is to, to you know. I don't believe there's any evidence that people are willfully wasting water and Irish Water have even said it themselves. They've said that 7-10% of domestic water households are 7-10% of domestic meter households um, they, they think are, are, there's a lot of water leaking out of their houses mm. but they say approximately 60% of these households have leaks which can be fixed. So it's not a question of willfully wasting water. And mm. the people who are willfully wasting water is Irish water themselves because they are not fixing the leaks of where treated water are going into pipes that are leaking big time. I listened to Sean Lefay yesterday, um, the head of the asset management, who said that nationally 43% of water, treated water leaks into the ground. Um, we, I would have, My figure would have been more than that, but that's what he said yesterday. Mm. And he was asked when... They are going to treat that water and beco- and and they themselves become, um, you know, uh, proper uh, conservation of water. And um, he said they'll only reduce it down to forty-one to forty-two percent by twenty twenty-two, and that's that in itself is outraged. And then they're coming back at people and saying that we're willfully wasting water. Mm. No, we're not. There's an awful lot of it falls out of the sky. Yes, an awful lot, of it, but it has to be treated, and mm. that costs money. Um, and I have no problem with a conservation campaign. Um, I saw my own sink in the bathroom. I have a little sticker that says, don't run water when you're brushing your teeth. It just reminds you all the time not to waste water unnecessarily. But it's not 
people individually who are really causing the problems. It's the 43% that this man, Sean Lafay, says is leaking into the ground. That's mm. the problem. Mm. Yeah, I suppose there wouldn't ever be a, a problem if uh, we didn't have the leaks. Uh, there wouldn't be a problem if we didn't get good spells of dry weather, which we did for an inordinate uh, period of time last year. Maybe it's due to climate change. Maybe it's, uh, it was a, a freak year. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, it's dry for a few days and it rains for a few days. Uh, and there should be plenty of water here. There should be. There should be, and if they fix, no one, I don't think any country in, in the world would have a 100% non-leakage of water, treated water into the ground. But you could, I think the standard is about 10%. If we were saving 33% of our water, treated water, um, by stopping it leaking into the ground, mm. that would have a phenomenal impact on um, the amount of water in, the, in our reservoirs and, um, and to deal with cases like that bad drought last year or... Um, Three weeks of no no rain, um, mm. but the, the fact of the matter is, this this is the responsibility of Irish Water, and to my mind, they're putting supply of safe treated water for everyone at risk, not the individual um, household, who many people and even the the um, the commission there, um, the regulator, um, during the debate around water charges, said that um, the Irish people uh, are not uh, willfully wasting water. There's no evidence of that at all. Um, that report showed that Irish households use 25% less water than our UK mm. counterparts. Um, so there's no evidence of this. So they keep raising it all the time that the <laughs> customers are their customers or whatever, but the householders are causing the problem. We are not putting the supply at risk. Mm. Irish water is putting the supply at risk by not doing the job they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, but are they going to charge us for it? Well, they're saying that this is the um, uh, legislation that was brought in in 2017 and um, that we opposed that they can do this and it looks like they are implementing it um, and they will do it by the end of this year. Um, I think something like 50% of households are metered, another 50% aren't metered. Um, but by the 50% that are, are metered, they're saying about 5 to 10% are using the excess um, ratio of water per day, the recommended, um, and that they will send letters to them and tell them to check their pipes for leakages and all that. Um, the, uh, the houses that are metered or aren't metered? Are metered. That are metered, yeah. yeah. What, what if they're not metered? If they're not metered, they're saying that they are going to send crews out, which they can do anyway. This has always mm. been the case, and this is the case that we argued at the time. Yeah. They can send you know, crews out into an area um, where there's a district uh, meter, and they can check where there's a lot of water getting leaked into a, an estate, and then they can they can go to the estate and then um, indicate who or what house or business or whatever is causing the problem in relation to um, a lot of mm. water being used. Um, being used or being leaked? I mean, when you're talking about leaks, you're probably talking about thousands of gallons of water that just flows out of pipes uh, unnecessarily. Not the sort of thing that uh, would be down to someone watering their garden or washing their car, the type of thing we're being told not to do. Exactly. That, they could be leakages right through the piping system before mm. it gets to the household. So that, that's, that's mm. true. The Irish um, actually local authority water workers um, are, have huge expertise in relation to this mm. and, and allocating, you know, specifically um, pinpointing where a problem could be in a household um, or in a business or in the ground with the, with the leaks. Um, and, and the, you know, to, to run this, they're, they're saying that, you know, I think it's 570,000 households that's 5 to 10%, and um, they could be charged €500 Euro, 
um, for this if they don't deal with the leaks mm. or with the problems. And that would bring in about €35 million Euro if they did that. But they're saying it's not about, about money, they're saying it's about cons- conservation. And mm. um, they're saying that they probably won't do that because it'll most likely be down to burst pipes and they'll come along and fix those pipes exactly. and they'll do it free. So, And that'd be great. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. They should mm. be doing that anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Um, without threatening people with charges and all that. Because mm. um, the, the, the call centre, the Irish Water, calls, Irish Water Call Centre alone costs €30 million Euro a year to run. Mm. So immediately, you know, if every single household um, was going to be charged €500, Euro, they're going to make you a loss anyway <laughs> in relation yeah. to it. Um, but really what this is about, you know, I, I, I come back to the point that Irish Water are responsible for leaking 43%, as he said. I think the figure is higher. Um, that Sean Lefay said uh, leaks into the ground that's the problem mm. that's, that's the actual problem there and that's what should be fixed Alright, I was reading in the paper this morning that in Israel uh, there's a 7 to 8% leakage rate and uh, they've changed what was a, a crisis in providing water to people into one of uh, the best models in the world and they've done that uh, through a, a number of ways. Uh, they've sorted out a lot of the leaks. Uh, there was an awful lot of leaky pipes and uh, they sorted that out and after the worst drought in uh, the country in 100 years uh, they were close at having no water. Now it has a surplus of water. They had a a national campaign to conserve and reuse dwindling water resources and a new state-of-the-art desalination uh, system uh, which would have been taking uh, the salt out of seawater. Well, that's the way to go. There's loads of examples around the world where um, countries have taken decisive action and that have uh, had uh, referendums uh, to keep the water in public that have targeted, as you said, mm. um, the pipes in, in, in fixing them. You, the, the fact, there's another fact out there that a lot of people don't know um, and, and that is that um, water companies, you know, I'm not going to mention any of their names, that sell, sell our water in, in plastic bottles in supermarkets and all that. And there's, there's no introduction of, of abstraction charges for those. They're taking our water free of stressing mm. that water free and then selling it on to people. Um, and that should be targeted as well. Um, the, the bottled water? The bottled, the right. bottled water, uh, yeah. Mm, mm, um, okay. And that, that was also in the uh, Government's Expert Commission on Funding of, of Domestic Public Water Services. They raised that issue. Mm. It hasn't been done. Um, that's another source. Is that one reason why we have less water now than when it wasn't a problem? Possibly. possibly. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. all that water. It's very mm. hard to get figures. Um, yeah. We've tried over a number of years to try and get. Yeah, because if you're old, if you're old enough to remember when you said they're asking you to buy water in the shops, are you mad? Uh, well, then you'll remember the time when there was never a problem with water, apart from 1976 or whatever the last big drought was. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. So that that issue has to be looked at, I and mean, we need to source those to find out exactly how much these companies are abstracting from from our our, our water reserves. Um, and then, then factor that in, and they should be charged for it, and they're, they're not being charged for it. But uh, again, Michael, I'll just keep going back to the point, Irish Water, to my mind, are putting supply of safe treated water uh, for everyone at risk, not me or you or Mrs. Jones down the road mm. or somebody who has medical needs or somebody who has yeah. five or you know, ten children or eight children that are using water mm. um, per day because, you know... If, if that was dealt with, then they could come back to us and, uh, and make another appeal. In well, they say they're giving us all a, a huge allowance, much more than we should need. It's 146 litres a day per person, I think, on average, uh, is what 
this allowance is said to be. But the concern I take it is, is that if it's 146 litres a day now, that that will reduce to 120, will reduce to 100, will reduce to 80 and so on. Um, and that is a huge concern. That's why we opposed it when the legislation was going through, um, because um, it, the actual legislation allows that to happen. And the um, Commission for Regulation of Utilities has the authority then to look at that and review it after so many years. Because the average person uses 133 litres per day. Mm. So 146 litres is not a huge amount if the average person uses the 133 litres, you know. Mm. Um, so, and that's a possibility. And that will be absolutely resisted because we always felt and, and still do feel, many of us who are involved in the anti-water charge campaign, um, it w- is that, that this is a sort of water charge to the back door and mm. over a period of time, like you said, they'll try and reduce it down to 120, 80, mm, whatever. Mm, mm, mm. Um, but, uh, listen, I... I from, from the ordinary person's point of view, um, I would say conserve. We should always conserve um, as much water as we can. It's, it's, it's a hugely um, scarce resource, um, and it shouldn't be a scarce resource if all, all the other aspects are put into place. Mm. Um, but that, um, again, we, I, I'll just keep coming back that Irish Water have a huge responsibility here. Um, they, have, they should be investing over the next five years to bring that water, national water leakage down to possibly 10%, 8%, and look at the technology in other countries that are able to do that. And also desalinate. That's absolutely fantastic innovation if that can be done. Right. Uh, and obviously uh, this was a decision which was made by the Commission for Regulation of Utilities and it's approved what Irish Water had been asking for. Uh, and you could say that that was an independent decision and the timing of it uh, is coincidental. Uh, but if the doll was sitting, I'm sure it'd be raised uh, in Leinster House today. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Are you cynical about that, in other words? Very cynical. Um, sure, look at the, what's that coming through about the cervical check, um, about the uh, sports Ireland HSE, um, the, these new nine regional whatever, that is Paddish mm. Lawn to Care, but that's not, that's all been done without any sort of checks or balances within the doll. Mm. Well, we were um, just, we were just uh, talking to Sean Defoe about that. S- s- they're dismantling the HSC, no detail, no mm-hmm. chance to question it, and maybe come back, uh, because people would love that idea, maybe come back after the holidays uh, and without giving any detail or any uh, way of uh, achieving it, go straight to an election saying, look, we were the ones who were going to dismantle the HSE. If they could. I can't see them going straight to an election, though. No, um, no, I can't see no. that happening with Brexit and that. Um, but it, it is wrong. The doll should be sitting longer. I mean, I think when all these issues are coming up, um, there should be t- the, the, the Parliament, the doll is, is a place where they should be challenged in, mm. in relation to these issues. Um, even the whole question of the private... Um, with private consultation in the new children's hospital and the new maternity hospital. I raised that just the week before the door closed. And mm. um, the report came out after we, after the door was closed because I was demanding that we should see that report um, in relation to separating private practice from public um, hospitals. Um, and we haven't seen it. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, it's, closing the door area is a tactic to not be held accountable um, by their peers in the, in the door chamber. And it could be a coincidence, as we say, in relation to some of these issues. But I suppose we leave that up to people listening to decide themselves. Absolutely. But again, Irish Water, they're the ones responsible for fixing the leaks. You know, (laughs) that's 
should be happening and not pointing the finger at ordinary people who are trying their best and who do not willfully waste water as per the expert commission in relation to um, Irish people. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us here on the programme today. Independence for Change TD, Joan Collins. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now we'll return uh, to the issue of road safety after hearing uh, that harrowing story early this morning of how uh, very young life was lost needlessly on the roads uh, because of a driver who was under the influence of cannabis and it's uh, the use of drugs, drink, speeding and other uh, things that are prohibited on the road that can quite often result in deaths uh, to help road safety licenses are quite often taken off people but the Park Road Safety Group has discovered that 75% of motorists who are convicted of drink driving do not present their licence in court 90% of those who were disqualified failed to surrender their licence to the Road Safety Authority we're joined by Susan Gray who's uh, the chairperson of uh, the Park Road Safety Group and a very good morning to you, Susan, and thanks for joining us. Uh, those uh, figures uh, that you're giving us uh, today are national figures, and quite often, uh, depending on which part of uh, the country you're talking about, it can be worse. Uh, the recording of licence numbers for drink-driving convictions in Louth is as low as 5% and as low as 10% in County Mead. It's quite shocking to see these statistics. Isn't it? And when you notice as well that there's counties like Wexford and Wicklow, when we're doing the analysis of the court service figures, they're coming up highest in a lot of the categories. Why is that? Why yeah. is there such a difference when you're, we're talking about the same district courts, the same county, and the same laws? Yeah, the differences are staggering. 54% recorded in Longford for drink driving, 5% in Louth for drink driving. What is your uh, feeling on it? Why do you think there is such a difference? Well, the law states that if you're caught drink driving, you're summoned to court, you must present your licence in court and the court clerk must record the licence number and send it to be inputted into Minister Shaner's Ross's National Vehicle and Driver file. That records who's been disqualified and what date and their licence number. Now, that is not, obviously, not happening when people are not presenting their licence in court. Now, the onus is on the judge to request that licence. Are people not producing the licence? And are some judges not accepting that and not um, proceeding with the case until such time that that person comes back with the licence, should they forget it at home or whatever? Are others proceeding with the case and not... um, waiting for the licence. Mm. So it's um, to how the judge handles it. People are walking out of mm. court mm. without getting the penalty points that, say, for speeding or holding a mobile phone while driving, mm. not getting the relevant points put onto their driver record file and that transport. 
that appears to be what's happening. But even where uh, we're doing better, we're not doing very well, are we? I mean, if you take Longford, uh, you could say 54% of uh, the licence numbers are are recorded, uh, but uh, that means that uh, 46% aren't, or Wexford, 47% recorded, meaning 53% aren't. I know. There's no... uh, Wicklow seems to be the best for... Recording licenses of speeding drivers on conviction. That's and at 80%, for is it? Recording um, mobile phone offence. And that's and at 85%. Yeah, 80 and 85%. Why can the other district courts not have the same figure? What is happening in Wexford and Wicklow time and time again that's not happening? Why can the same result? Why can we not have the same results in all the courts? Now the RSA keep coming up with different reasons, but none of them, none of them makes any sense because somebody needs to ask the question, and it should be the Road Safety Authority mm. and the Minister for Transport to look at these figures and figure out. What is happening in these different courts? The reasons RSA is coming up with are totally... They don't make any sense. Because if they did, we would have a slow rate or uh, an equal rate in most of the courts. Mm. We would not have a difference of 85% to 5%, depending on what county you're in. Kerry, Mm. 5%. Louth, 5%. Meath, 10%. And is it a difference in how different judges are applying the law? You see, we don't know. As you know, Michael, we attended courts. We started off in 2013. And what we noticed then was there was a very ad hoc system in place whereby some court clerks would request their licence on conviction and others wouldn't. And we met with several ministers for transport over the years, and the Road Safety Authority and the CEO of the court service, Brendan Ryan. Now, Brendan Ryan, the CEO, said at the time to us when we handed him a report and showed him the difference in courts, the different procedures in courts. Now, his explanation to us at the time was they had words with the, the court clerks in the areas where we noticed there was no recording of license numbers. And he came up with the reasoning that perhaps on the day that park members had attended these particular courts, perhaps there was an oversight on the part of that court clerk on that particular day Mm. where he or she forgot to ask for the license, to record the license number. Mm. So we went away and did attended something like 30, over 30 courts and came back with another report and asked, well, is it an oversight again? And if you get penalty points for using a mobile phone, let's say, and your licence isn't recorded, are the penalty points on your licence? If you get a fixed charge notice for speeding, and you pay the fine, mm. 
and accept three penalty points. Mm. Three penalty points go in your license. Yes, but you now, appeal it and go to court. Go to court yeah. You should, on conviction, get five penalty points. Mm. But you must produce your license in court. And, and a number must be recorded mm. by the court service. And not only that, it doesn't end there. Mm. The court service must send the details of that driver and the license to the Road Safety Authority for input into Transport National Vehicle Driver okay. Flight. And, 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 and if that doesn't happen, which is what you're telling us this morning doesn't happen in the majority of cases, does that mean that the five point points are applied? The five, five points do not be applied. Are the three points applied? Oh, yes. The three points is always applied they, because they you have to mm-hmm. fill out a form mm-hmm. and on that form you have to include your driving licence okay. number. And then there's no... There's no confusion. Mm-hmm. And if you're found... Uh, if you're found Drinking and driving over the limit, you're automatically disqualified, regardless, is it? Automatically disqualified. Okay, but if you go to court and it's uh, not recorded, your licence number is not recorded, well, then you walk out of the court with your licence and if you're stopped driving by a member of uh, the Gardaí, uh, there's nothing to say that you've been disqualified. And therein lies the problem. Exactly. But even worse than that, the... The licence number, if it's not recorded in court, it doesn't go on to Transport's National Vehicle Driver File. But we have a second problem. 90% of those disqualified are not surrendering their licence because when you're disqualified in court, the RSA write out and ask you to return your licence, surrender your licence by posting it to a PO box in court. 90% are not doing that. Mm. They're holding on to their licence. So, and the RSA, we have asked them time and time again to change that pathetic system whereby people are asked to voluntarily return their licence to a PO box. It's obviously not working, but the RSA have no plans in changing that on such for purpose system they have in place. Okay, uh, and in County Louth, where five percent of license numbers are recorded, uh, it follows that up to uh, uh, as many as ninety percent of the people convicted of drink driving, or ninety-five uh, percent and ninety percent in me, that could be in a position where they have a, a license and continue to drive if that's what they choose to do. Yeah, well, not necessarily only mm-hmm. for drink driving. Yeah, but anybody disqualified, ninety percent are not surrendering their license. There is huge problems here. Okay. And each agency seems to be claiming the other agency, whereas we want them all to work together. Court service, RSA, transport, justice, to get this mess absolutely sorted once and for all. Okay. It is so bad, Michael, mm-hmm. that at present, the court service is only a manual way of sending information from the courts to the RSA manually, in the year 2019. They're talking for years about doing it electronically. And the RSA now are trying to get the court service to send it electronically straight to transport. Don't know why it ever went to RSA and then RSA have to input it into transport. It's very, very messy. So they were saying there on RT, I think in March, that they were hoping to have a system in place by the summer whereby the courts would send it electronically within 
a month or whatever in a, a, a timely manner to transport's database. We would love to know, has that even been, what's the progress on that? Okay. Plenty for people to ponder indeed uh, to be concerned about uh, for that matter. Susan, we leave it there and thank you for joining us here on the programme this morning. Susan Gray, the chairperson of the Park Road Safety Group. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, Lisa Smith is a woman from uh, Dundalk who served in uh, the Irish Defence Forces, worked on uh, the government uh, jet at one time and uh, decided to to travel to Syria where it's uh, said she was radicalised and uh, became a member of uh, the IS state. She's now being held in a refugee camp and has been interviewed by journalist Norma Costello for RTE News and she's been talking about the situation that she finds herself in now and how she may be perceived here if she was to return because there's been a lot of talk about Lisa Smith returning. Would she be a security threat? She says she doesn't believe that she would be but she's not sure that if everybody would believe that to be the case. I don't know if they would believe it or not but that's the truth. <laughs> no. But if they believe it or not I, that's up to them, you know. But I'm telling you from myself uh, I didn't fight. Really? Why? What did I do? I just joined the Islamic State and now I become a monster. How? I like you know. There's many people, the British and the Irish, fought for many, many, many years. You know. If someone from England moved to Ireland, then what would they say with them? <laughs> you know, or the opposite. You know, or many any country. You know what I mean? Like, how am I a monster? I came here to Islamic State and I didn't do anything. Okay, she says she's not a monster and Lisa Smith also says that during her time in Syria uh, she wasn't responsible as being claimed for training children to fight for IS. Are you sure it's me? Because they don't know my name. Absolutely causal. How did they know me? Uh, what did they know me as by? Let, let me just run the scenario no. by you and then you can go see. Okay. Um, so basically you were teaching along with the Tunisian teacher and you were teaching children in weapons and the Tunisian teacher was being quite aggressive with the children. And you complained and said that they were, the Tunisian teacher was being too aggressive and that they should be softer with the kids. And your complaint, exactly like the scenario you just painted out, was trumped by the Tunisian, mm. the administration of the school. It's exactly what you said, agreed with. And you were kicked out of the school and you lost your job. <laughs> this is completely meaningless to me. This is so untrue. So untrue, she says. She did not train children to fight uh, for IS. Lisa Smith is being interviewed uh, by Norma Costello for RTE News and uh, I suppose uh, there continues to be a lot of speculation as to whether she will return to Ireland. Indeed, if she will return to Dundalk, she has a two-year-old daughter and she was asked if she'd be concerned if her child would be seen as a child terrorist. Seen as a child of a terrorist. No, this is what I'm worried about, though, you know. I do have my concerns, like, going back to Ireland because of this, you know. And that's why I say, like, if things like that happened, I believe that things do be forgotten about in time, you know. Right now, yeah, everything's public, everything's crazy, everything is, like, up in the air, you know. Then things die down. Then another, something else will happen in the world or something happen in Ireland, and that will become a big thing. And over time, things, people forget about things, you know. In a year, two years, people forget things, three years, four years. New generations come, new life comes, new things happen and people forget, you know.
Lisa Smith and as to whether people will remember in two or three years or not I suppose will be something that only time will tell but Lisa Smith says that there's no reason to be concerned about her I'd like to do anything you know I told you I just came to the Islamic State like any other any of these yeah I do know there is other people here with really extreme and radical views really extreme and radical views you know and I don't even want to communicate with these people you know but I'm not like this. I'm just, I just came here and now it didn't work out. I suppose a lot of people might have said uh, that they just travelled to London so there was no reason to worry about them. It doesn't sound quite the same in that context of, well, I just travelled to Islamic State. But Lisa Smith was a member of the Irish Defence Forces and she did work on the government jet and she's been speaking about some of the people who were on that jet when she was a member of the Irish Army. People like the former Taoiseach Bertie Ahern. Bertie, he's a... He was very uh, sound. <laughs> you know, Mary McLeish, she was down to earth as well. Um, who else? Uh, Michal Martin. I like. I liked working with him as well. I liked flying around with him. He was okay. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a few that were nice. There you go. That's uh, the latest interview with Lisa Smith. It was conducted with Norma Costello for RTE News. Now, before we leave you today, let's uh, hear some more of uh, the comments that have been coming to us. Maria's back in studio. You've uh, a few more calls there, I Marie. sure do, Michael. A couple of people responding to your interview with Deputy Joan Collins in relation to the excessive water usage and the charges for it. Michael says, what about those, Michael, who have no water meters? Are they just going to be exempt from this? And how is that fair, if that is the case? Yeah, well, this is the thing that Irish Water are saying. They'll be able to come out and uh, see that a lot of water is being used uh, in a district and then they'll be able to pinpoint it. Noreen says, listening to your interview about the water charges, Michael, if they get to bring this in, it will lead to further charges down the line. That's what I fear. It's the back door into full water bills. Mm, well, they say no, that's not the case. I don't know. Debbie from Navin thinks that people who willfully waste water should be forced to pay for it. Thinks that's only fair. We need to be conserving our water and people do use it needlessly. Mm, no. So that's her thoughts on it. Also, Mary was in touch in relation to your interview with Elaine Thornton and says wants to congratulate her on the powerful interview this morning. She's done her little sister proud in speaking so openly and candidly about the torment she and her family continued to face since Gillian's death. Please God people will take heed of her message and no other family will have to go through what Elaine and her family are going through. Okay, I'm sure people will echo that right across the region. Uh, Elaine really was uh, very brave uh, today and uh, very powerful in how she represented her sister Gillian as she has been in other media interviews over the last couple of days. We leave it on that note and thanks to everybody who has been in touch. Thanks Marie and remember that if you'd like to listen back to today's programme there'll be a podcast available on our website lmfm.ie. God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.